Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. So the long campaign is almost over, Dave. Three more days and then we have uh, some, some real election results. So for those of you who are political junkies like we are, uh, Tuesday couldn't come fast enough, although... Uh, we hope that everything goes peaceful, right? That's the that's the big hope. That would be nice. Yeah, I don't know. The question is, do we have going to withdraw uh, the day after when there's no new polls and new punditry to analyze and read about? Might be a good thing for us, a little healthy break from all that. And so let's go right to the headlines. And we're going to start with the state of the race as we're recording uh, Friday evening. The latest betting odds, uh, composite at least, at Real Clear Politics, have Biden with a 64 64- 0.1% chance of winning, and Donald Trump at 34.9. And if you look at some of the simulation sites, which seem to be proliferating, uh, 538 has them at 89%. The Economist is up to 97% for Biden, and 270 to win says 87% chance of victory for Biden. Somewhere around 90% chance of victory, according to these simulations which interestingly enough is exactly where we were in 2016. Now that was kind of the composite projection was a 90% chance of a Biden victory. Now it's fair to say that at least on the 538 site, they, they certainly emphasize that unlikely events happen. And so the fact that something is a 10% chance uh, is not the same thing as saying it's a 0% chance. And one in 10 things happen uh, about one time in 10. But of course, if it were to happen again, that would be two unlikely events in a row. That would suggest perhaps maybe there's a problem with the models. We want to talk a little bit about the models, what's behind those models and the polls and some of the analysis around that. Uh, There was an interesting column by Rich Lowry of National Review about a week and a half ago, which was summarizing a conversation that he'd had with Robert Cahaley of the Trafalgar Group on, on Lowry's podcast. And uh, if you know the name Trafalgar Group, you probably know it because in 2016, it was the one polling organization that had Trump leading in both Michigan and Pennsylvania and also got the Electoral College vote exactly right. And so at that point, Trafalgar was involved in a number of campaign-related things, and polling was kind of a, a part of that. And since then, they've gone more or less into all polling all the time on the strength of their success in 2016. Uh, And it's interesting if you go on Real Clear Politics now or look at other sites that have various polls that have been taken in recent days, you'll find that the Trafalgar polls uh, consistently have better numbers for President Trump than at least the composite averages do. So trying to understand that, Lowry asked him about some of the methodological differences between his approach and the approach of other pollsters. And uh, Kahali focused in the response to that on this idea of social desirability bias. And, you know, maybe you've heard about the idea of the shy voter, the shy conservative, the shy Trump voter. This is the more technical term for this, at least as Kahali is using it. Basically, recognizing that people don't want to be judged for their preferences by a person who's giving a poll. And so they de-emphasize live calls and focus more on automatic calls, robocalls, sometimes call those texts, emails, do some other things digitally online. So they try to make it as clear as possible to the person who's being polled that this is anonymous. It's okay to say what you think. And then they also will often ask a follow-up question where they ask what you think your neighbors will vote and how you think your state or, you know, overall your community will vote. And, And they use that to adjust the results basically on the assumption that sometimes we're more honest about what we perceive our, our neighbors and associates will do than we are about ourselves. And so they sort of assume that that, uh, looking at that will give you an indication is, is there a gap between what the person's saying 
and what they actually intend to do. So this is kind of the basic approach that they've taken at Trafalgar. And at least this is what they attribute to their success in 2016. So what, what do you make of all that, Dave, as, as you think about this outlier in 2016 and outlier in 2020? Uh, how should we think about that as we look at the polls and try to project the race? Well, I definitely think that context matters when you're asked a question. Who are you voting for for president? If you're in California where you see you know, many Biden signs all around you, you're not probably going to like walk through your neighborhood you know, with a Trump t-shirt on and, and vice versa. If you're in Texas or parts of Texas right, that are very red, uh, there does seem to be a tendency right, to want to um, just stay, stay shy or, or quiet in that circumstance. So I, I think that there's something to that. I, I wonder uh, about those who take calls and, and spend a long time on them. I think those tend to be very politicized people. So you're, I don't know if you're getting a really good representation of things um, with the telephone call. So maybe the robocall is a, is a better thing because it's quick and, and you get your preferences out there quickly and then go from there. So yeah, I just, I, I, I think that the biggest thing for me, Matt, is when I look at how far off the polling was in 2016 to the real result, I ask myself, well, why is that the case? And, you know, have things been fixed so that that will not be the case in, in, in 2020? So I, I kind of um, probably give uh, Donald Trump three to five points on any of these. And to me, that's why it's a closer race than, than, than many of the uh, pollsters have it. Yeah, that is the big question. So there, interestingly enough, uh, after 2016 and after it was really the state level polls that were off, the national polls, the average was three points in Hillary's favor. The result was two points in Hillary's favor. So obviously that's within a reasonable margin there. But it was state level polls in the key, especially Midwestern battleground states and some states that turned out to be battleground states that no one realized were battleground states, perhaps except Trafalgar. Uh, those were the polls that were off by the most. And so there's a, it's always an association, right? There's the American Association of Public Opinion Research. And after the last election in 2016, they, they did some academic research and some studies of, of how they got things wrong. And again, they focused on those state level polls because that was really where the problem was. Um, and their conclusion focused on three factors as they tried to figure out why they made this mistake, uh, collectively speaking. Number one, late deciding voters. Number two, a shift in the voting habits of voters without a college education that hadn't been anticipated by the pollsters as they were making up their sample and adjusting for the differences among the people that were in their sample. And then thirdly, that more Trump voters than Clinton voters didn't reveal their preference until after the election. What they mean by that is that there's actually polls where they take a poll before the election and then they go back to the same people after the election and say, who did you actually vote for? And they compare the results. And there are more people who had a different result on the Trump side than there were on the Clinton side in the direction of Trump. In other words, there were more people that voted for Trump uh, in retrospect than had said that at the time that the poll was taken before the election. And now that could be the shy Trump effect or the shy conservative effect, or it could be that people were changing their mind at the last minute, uh, that, that late-breaking, late-deciding voter phenomenon again. So they looked at this. They, they looked at several hundred polls. And on the late-deciding voters, that, that turned out to be a, an important factor. So if you look at Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, obviously four really close states and decisive states in the election, between 11 and 15% of the voters said that they finally decided for whom to vote in the last week before the election. And of that group in Wisconsin, there was a 30 point spread in favor of Trump. In Pennsylvania and, and Florida, a 17 point spread in Michigan, 11 point spread. So that was his margin over Hillary among those voters. And so if you were to take those late deciding voters out, you would have Hillary winning both Florida and Wisconsin, probably. Trump probably still wins Michigan and Pennsylvania, but that still flips the election. Right? If Florida goes the other way, Wisconsin goes the other way, it's 271 to 267 Hillary. The late deciding voters, obviously the most difficult to capture in a poll, unless you're polling right at the last minute, were 
decisive in a couple of these states, it looks like at least. Now, interestingly enough, of course, if you think about how that relates to this election, there's been a lot of surveys that suggest that people have their minds made up, right? So is there, is there that group to break uh, at the last minute that might break in the direction of President Trump? And the other factor, as you think about this time around, it's typical that late deciding voters break in the direction of the challenger uh, rather than the incumbent. Now, of course, Hillary wasn't the incumbent, but her party was the incumbent party. And so it wasn't surprising that the late breakers went in favor of a change. Normally, you know, you know enough about the, the party in power. You have your opinion about them perhaps decided earlier. If you're, if you're undecided, it's more likely you're going to break in favor of, of the challenger if the challenger seems like a plausible contender. The only thing I'd say on that, Matt, is that it seems to me it's odd because Donald Trump is the president. It seems to me just from the the words he uses, the the language, the the the, um, the narrative of the race, that he's the non-establishment candidate still, and that Joe Biden is is the establishment candidate. So if you did have those late-breaking voters, you know, go uh, for the uh, the challenger, to me, I, I understand challenger to be anti-establishment. So when you were going through kind of what happened in 2016, I can see that happening again. I, I think that uh, it could be a very good final week of the campaign uh, for President Trump because he's able to draw in anti-establishment vote from perhaps individuals without a college education who then show up at rural uh, polling places. Uh, and there's a lot of energy there uh, for his candidacy that allows him to go over the top and, and to have a very different result than what we're seeing in these polls. So uh, to me, I, I, I could very well see a, something happening in 2020 uh, because of the dynamic that you spelled out for 2016 that explains why the polls were so off. No, that's a fair point. And, and it's certainly the way that in the second debate in particular, President Trump was presenting himself right as as this challenger of the establishment, the inside interests, the swamp, and kind of using that language. I'm not a politician. You're a politician. You've been there 47 years, so it's possible that somehow he's a uh, an incumbent who's still an outsider and might be might per- perceived in that way. Um, I think the, the the question of whether there's a lot of people that are undecided, I think, is is an interesting one. Uh, it's, it seems like, again, if you, if you trust the polls that we've seen on this, that there's a surprisingly small number of people that seem to be saying they're undecided. The second factor that you mentioned a minute ago was education level. So in the past, this hadn't really been important. It's typical when a pollster does a poll that they don't actually get the sample that they want. Most people don't answer the phone. Most people will refuse to answer the questions. So you get what you get, and then what they do is they, they adjust based on a, a model, a statistical model that they have going into this and say, okay, we want this profile of people. And so the difficulty is if, you're, if there's factors that you're not aware of that are influencing a vote, then you might scale up from this number of Republicans to the full number of Republicans and not actually get a right appreciation of of the population as a whole, or this group um, based on men versus women, or whatever the subcategories are that you're looking for to fill out your, your sample. So there were a number of polls, especially state-level polls, that didn't look at the issue of education. And the reason they hadn't done that, and this is uh, Andy Smith, who uh, runs the UNH poll uh, up there at University of New Hampshire. He, talking about why his final poll was 11 points off, he had Clinton winning by 11 points. She barely won. It was by 0.4%. He went back and, and, and noted the fact that he hadn't done anything about education and that in the past that hadn't mattered because it was typical for the least educated and the most educated to vote more or less the same way. So, you know, you tend to get an oversample in a poll of the highly educated, an undersample of the less educated, but it doesn't really matter because those highly educated people represent on their political preferences the less educated well. But 
that's not what they found in 2016. And so having not weighed by the level of education in producing the final results of his final poll, he ended up being off. And, and when he went back and did that, then they found that that essentially accounted for all of the difference. So making that one correction took the poll from being 11 points off to being a dead heat, which is to say essentially accurate. So that, that clearly was an important factor. And all the major pollsters now say they, they've got that part of their formula. They're, they're, they're taking that into account. So they're not mm -hmm. going to repeat that mistake. The third issue is those voters that only revealed their preference, their actual preference after the election. And so that's where we come up with this issue of, of the shy voter and whether there's such a thing as that. Is that a common thing? Uh, are there those that feel social pressure? They don't want to admit they're in favor of the unpopular candidate. And they did some research around the question, basically, do you get better results if you have a robocall versus a live call? And the theory is, if there's this shy voter effect, you wouldn't mind sharing your opinion with uh, in a robo poll where it's not a person on the other end, but in a live interview, you'd be more shy. And so those, there should be a difference there. Those, those polls that did the robo calls should be more accurate than the ones that took a live sample. And when they did the research, they didn't find that, uh, that, that, that at least line of evidence wasn't there to support the idea that there were substantial number of, of shy voters. Um, so doesn't mean that that's not able to be captured somewhere else, but that hypothesis was not confirmed in the direction of there being a substantial number of people who don't want to tell a live person what they think about the race. Now, they went on and they, they looked particularly at the successes of Trafalgar and noted that they'd gotten these key battleground states correctly. But what they found, which is interesting, is that their overall accuracy in terms of the numbers, final numbers in Trafalgar versus the final numbers in the various battleground states that they polled, that they weren't especially better than the other polls. It's just they were wrong in the opposite direction. So they got the states right because they estimated, for example, Florida three points higher than Trump actually got. And so because he won by a razor-thin margin, their prediction was on the right side, therefore they, their prediction was correct. But the other state-level polls weren't more inaccurate. They were, may have been three points off as well, but they were three points off on the underside for Trump. And so a consequence of the fact that he won narrowly, they look like they're more wrong because they predicted the wrong winner, whereas numerically, it's basically a dead heat between them. So it wasn't that Trafalgar was especially more accurate than other state level polls in the sense of closer to the actual final results, but they consistently favored Trump when the other polls were wrong in the opposite direction. And so, again, going back to their different methods and the different approach it took, one thing which you mentioned before, Dave, which was um, part of Trafalgar's approach was to expand the group that they were polling and to consider the possibility that Trump might bring people back into the voting booths who hadn't voted in a while. Mm -hmm. And, and so they, they looked at voters that other pollsters wouldn't really bother polling because they vote so infrequently, they figure, well, they're not going to get involved in the election. And that group seems to have had some impact on the race that there were people that maybe had never voted or had voted infrequently, who were alienated from the system, who were attracted by Trump, who were motivated by Trump. And therefore, that group, which obviously broke in his direction, then wasn't taken into account by the pollsters, which then led them to have less uh, confidence in a Trump victory than was warranted by the actual circumstances on the ground. Yeah, I think there's something to that voter, because for me, elections are won by getting people to come out and vote for you on the basis of them saying, well, why does my vote matter? And I think a lot of people in the past don't vote because they don't believe that their vote is going to matter. And I think to the degree that a Trump 
uh, or a Biden wins um, next Tuesday, it's really on that basis of, you know, I have to vote for Trump or else this is going to happen to the country, or I have to vote for Biden or else this is going to happen to the country. And I, that's, that's to me why I, I can't quite understand, and, and maybe there isn't a difference in enthusiasm, but it surely seems that way when you look at the difference between um, Trump's events and, and Biden's events. Maybe we're making too much of that, but the enthusiasm difference between the two uh, campaigns is, is dramatic. It's, and, and I just, looking at those polls, it just don't seem to line up with the country and the people that, that I see that are around me. And I'm not simply around, you know, red state Republicans. But uh, I just, it just, to me, it, uh, it, that, just looking at that and then looking at how the race is being monitored, how the race is being presented, looking at the coverage of uh, events, and that seems to be skewed. I mean, that seems to be, it is skewed. Uh, the, the way that uh, the whole thing is presented to the American people is skewed. Uh, the whole way that um, things are censored on uh, Facebook and, and Netflix. If, if Trump is doing so poorly, why are you going that extra step uh, to make sure that, that he loses? So I'm, I'm, I kind of, I, I just think that the state is much more, uh, the race is much more in flux than, than, than people, you know, uh, have it right now. So, yeah. And speaking of people, so one more person who's more confident this time around, uh, Derek Thompson writing at the Atlantic, basically trying to calm down Biden supporters says that 2020 will not be a repeat of six, uh, 2016. And he gives five reasons which are related to the, the points we've just been talking about. So the first is that the major pollsters have all fixed their education problem. So they're taking that into account. They won't be blindsided by the fact that President Trump attracts a large number of voters who aren't college educated. Number two, again, he says that success Trump had with undecideds will not be replicated this time around, in part because there's so few undecideds. Uh, thirdly, he argues that if you look at the polls, it's been remarkably stable. And if you go back you know, to the beginning of the campaign, in essence, you know, the day of the Iowa caucuses, Biden's had, at least national polls, a four-point lead or, or better that entire time. And if you go back in 2016, it was up and down. There were points where they were tied. There were points where Hillary was substantially ahead. So th the race, even through COVID, through George Floyd, through all the, the events of the last six, nine months, so many big events, it's been remarkably stable, he argues. And therefore, there's, there's reason to believe that that stability will continue right through Election Day. The other thing he mentions, which we haven't talked about, is that if you look at congressional level polling, there, was, there were some signs of trouble in 2016 for Democrats. And he, he cites some studies or conversations that were had as people looking at congressional level polling and seeing districts that thought were safely democratic closer than they expected were putting up the alert and saying, watch out, we, we've got a problem here. Um, they're not finding that at that level this time around. So the same kinds of results are not appearing. Uh, if anything, things seem to be moving in a Biden direction that those district-level polls, according to Thompson's research. And then lastly, he says the pandemic, uh, that this is a, a key voting issue, that it's getting worse. Uh, the, you know, the President Trump's position on this has been it's getting better and success is right around the corner. And, and the question is, is that persuasive to people, especially in some of these battleground states where the, the rise in cases has been substantial in the last few weeks, and its feeling on the ground may not share the optimism of, of the president on that point. Yeah, or it could go in, in the opposite direction as well. There could be people who are wanting optimism, uh, even maybe just hoping for it, even if the, that's not you know, what they're seeing in, in front of them. That, that might, you know, turn out for Trump. I, I think these are good points. I think that, you know, you could say that uh, Democrats have learned their lessons uh, from 2016. They've uh, poured money into states and areas that they thought, you know, were just 
a gimme uh, in 2016. So it seems to me those things could have been easily corrected, um, and and hence the polls are showing that correction. But you know, you just you still you know, I I still wonder uh, whether uh, whether or not uh, this this thing is being presented you know fairly and honestly in terms of the numbers. Yeah, well, look, that's a fair point because I think what we've seen is that some of these gatekeeper institutions, which were willing to at least do some things on the level in the past, have decided that all bets are off, everything's fair game when it comes to President Trump. You know, that just seems like, you know, the, the New York Times, I mean, the sort of the classic story earlier this week as we find out who this anonymous senior official was who wrote the scathing editorial two years ago and followed up with a book. And we were assured there's this really high level person in the Trump administration who's trying their best to save the world from President Trump. And there's a group of them in there and we can be confident that at least they're trying and, and be, be thankful for them. Well, it turns out to be a guy who's deputy chief of staff for the direct, you know, director of Homeland Security, <laughs> you know, 30 years old. And this is your senior administration official. So, okay, if you're going to put the finger on the scales that way, right, how much, how much are you willing to do in order to get Trump out the door? I think that's, I think that's a fair question. Are, are we at a point where we can just trust that the internal integrity of pollsters and people presenting these models is such, right? They care enough about being right that they'll let the chips fall where they may. And you, I think you'd probably say that historically. That's, yeah, we, we expect that. They have their own professional integrity and expectations. And if you look at the poll numbers in 2012, they were wrong, but they were wrong in underestimating President Obama's support. Right? So it's not like we have a history where every four years, Republicans outperform their polls. But is there something about Trump? Is it about either the Trump voters or the response in elite institutions to President Trump that, that changes the ballgame? That, that's what we don't know. And obviously, we can't know until we see the results on Tuesday or two months from Tuesday, whenever, whenever it turns out to be. Right. And that antagonism has grown, not dissipated since he became president. So the, yeah. the fear that you're not having a right representation of where things stand has only grown in, in my eyes. I just, I, I just, I, I wonder whether or not what's being shown to us is actually what the truth is. So. I think we, we have reason to be suspicious. I think there's good reason to think that at least the pollsters are aware of the problems that led them to erroneous results last time. And I think, again, even if you took the Trafalgar polls, they're not great for President Trump. I mean, if Trafalgar is right on the nose, then there's still some states that are really close that he needs to win. And so it's not like that's a slam dunk. He, the uh, Cahali was, was, was talking about Trump winning in the 270s to low 280s. And obviously that means you're down to a single state flipping the thing in, 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 in a number of cases. Well, let's try to get another take on this. So let's move beyond the polls, what's another way of getting a state of the race? Well, one thing that can be valuable, because we know that these campaigns are doing internal polling. And so one thing that's maybe indicative of where they think the race is, is where they're going. We've got so few days left in the campaign. You got four days, including today, to campaign, and then that's it. So where are they? So here's, here's President Trump's schedule. Today, he was in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. I, I find it interesting that he's still working hard on Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. I, I think that that tells us something, right? That if you have a lot of events there, he thinks that his pathway to victory goes through uh, the Rust Belt, goes through um, uh, Big Ten country, and, uh, and maybe he has something uh, to that in his internal polling. Yeah, so just to follow up on that, so Saturday he's going to have three appearances in Pennsylvania. Sunday, he's back in Michigan, and then Iowa, North Carolina, and Florida. A lot of, a lot of travel on one day. Helps to have an Air Force One to take you around. Then Monday, he's got five events, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and then back to Michigan. Oh. Total of 16 events in four days, covering seven states. As you say, most of those 
in that Rust Belt, Big Ten kind of area, plus North Carolina and Florida. Anything else you make of that distribution of states and what that might say about where they think they've got to win and where they think the race is, is close? Surprise, there's no Arizona. I know yeah. he won it by a large margin um, in 2016, and, and it's you know considered to be a Republican state, but I'm surprised that he's not getting out there uh, to Arizona, not to say that he hasn't been this past week or two, but that uh, maybe he's seeing things there that shows that that race is turning in his favor. Uh, certainly, um, the, ra- the Senate race is getting closer uh, for McSally uh, versus Kelly, and, and uh, there is a a stable group of Republican voters uh, in Arizona. So maybe they, maybe they think that, you know, Arizona is sewn up, but uh, yeah, it's, I, that, that'd be the one thing that jumps out to me. Yeah. The other one to me is Iowa because he won Iowa by almost 10 points last time. And so if he's there in Iowa, that's not great. And it's also suggested because it's only six electoral college votes that you're anticipating a close race, right? You, you, you know, you need, you need those six votes and that you don't feel like they're sewn up. Now, maybe he's trying to help Joni Ernst. That's another possibility. And so, you know, the Republican majority in the Senate is also very important. But we'll see. Now, how about Biden's schedule? Uh, a lot of the same states, not surprisingly, but he's going to be, today he was in Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, which was a, a major set of campaign outings for him. Uh, he's had a number of days off, even in the last week or so. But today he had three events in three states. Tomorrow, two events in Michigan, and then Sunday he's in Philadelphia, and Monday it says, according to um, the information they're putting out, he's barnstorming Pennsylvania. So I guess hitting a number of different sites or driving around, or I don't know what barnstorming means for Joe Biden in 2020, moving around in Pennsylvania and trying to focus, apparently, his efforts there for the last two days of the campaign. You take anything away from that, Dave? Yeah, no Texas, uh, no Georgia. So I think that's a little bit um, of a ruse that those states are in play. I don't, I don't think they are. I think that if, if they were that confident about where they were, they wouldn't be reinforcing uh, in places like Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and um, the upper Midwest. So I, I think that, you know, I, I, I see from the Biden schedule that they see the campaign uh, like the Trump uh, team as being close, uh, a, a close race that's going to be determined by how the Rust Belt votes. Yeah, Kamala Harris is in Georgia. I think it was today or this weekend. So she's she's there, but you're right. No Joe Biden there, nowhere in the South. No, no Florida appearance, which would be another thing you might expect. But it seems like he knows that, that Trump's going to need either Pennsylvania or two out of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota to win. And so obviously, if he can prevent that by winning Pennsylvania, and then two of those other states, then, then that's, that's the race, essentially, unless something very unusual happens in, in a state that we're not expecting to go in Trump's direction. All right, well, a lot of numbers and analysis here, statistics and statisticians talking about statistics. So let's, let's feed the right brain or the right side of the brain a little bit. Uh, Kyle Smith, who's the movie critic at large at National Review, dabbles in politics a little bit and has a little bit of fun when he does that. So he wrote a, uh, a piece today uh, wondering if it's possible that all the statisticians, etc., could be wrong. And this is how he begins. He says, when it comes to polling like Jon Snow, I know nothing. I don't know from statistics. I'm so inubrate that I'd have to phone a friend if you asked me what comes between 10 and 12. When it comes to crunching, I choose potato chips over numbers every time. Plus, when it comes to politics, I'm hopeless. I predicted both that Donald Trump wouldn't run for president and that Democratic voters would find Joe Biden's creepy behavior around women disqualifying. Live and learn. Biden is way ahead. And he is certainly going to win, right? I'm all about stories, not numbers. True, the plural of anecdotes is not data. So nothing I have to say can possibly have any value whatsoever. When the whiz kids say President Trump has a 13% chance to win re-election, listen to them. Whiz kids are never wrong. But when I look at President Trump, I see a guy who is trying so hard to get the girl, the voter, that he wears her down till she gives in just to shut him up. And, and so he goes on and he sort of adds the, the, the style of the Trump campaign, which he thinks speaks to something fundamental in the American character. And so he says... 
even when we're getting kicked in the teeth, we're, we've still got dragon energy. Viral attack, Islamic attack, Martian attack, whatever. It's still America. Pedal down, open throttle, forward thrusting, Red Bull America. Do we really want to give up the top prize to the nice old gentleman whose argument is that he's quiet? We built this country on rock and roll, not Muzak. Donnie T is facing Kenny G. Kyle is a great writer. And for those of you who you know, don't read him, you should uh, add him to your list of uh, regular reads. I think there's something to it. And he's, what is, what's he getting at? Just the, the spirit of what you see around you doesn't match the spirit of what's being presented uh, to you or in the spirit of what's being presented to you. It's a, it's a safe country versus kind of the America that you know it and that you're seeing you know, in your regular uh, life. I mean, I, I've mentioned Texas many times on the show. You know, I don't, the, the, the America that I see in Texas is very different than the America that's presented to me on TV. Well, so he goes on and he kind of picks out different items that he's noticed in the news that just give him pause in accepting the narrative that this is going to be a, a slam dunk victory for Joe Biden. So he mentions, first of all, that, that Biden's going to be in Minnesota. And well, isn't Minnesota supposed to be solid Democrat country? Uh, he mentions there was a New York Times employee who said that went home to Pennsylvania and just couldn't believe all the Trump people that were around him. And this was suburban Philadelphia, right? Suburbs of Philadelphia. Uh, He mentions Don Lemon of of CNN, who was saying he had to cut off some friends because he had too many friends who were Trump supporters. And you think, really? CNN anchors have a lot of Trump supporting friends. That's, that seems improbable. You give that credit for having those kind of friendships, at least until now, because my guess is that there aren't too many anchors at the networks who could say that they would have to cut off friends because of their Trump support. They probably don't know Trump supporters. Then there's a poll out that the majority thinks Trump will win. Um, So is that about polls and suspicion over 2016 or is that people sensing something that's actually there? There's a poll that says 56% of Americans think they're better off now than four years ago. It's really amazing that that's the case. What's and, amazing it allowed that number to be put in print. <laughs> yeah. It's just that you're surprised that, you know, some uh, media censor didn't like, Oh, we can't put that out there. That, that just, you know, that that's not the narrative we're trying to put forth. So anyway, I'm just, and you wonder if Trump even mm-hmm. believes it because he doesn't even say it. Right. I mean, right. you would think that was, that was the, of course the classic line of Reagan's 84 campaign morning in America, but are, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And, and that was how we made the pitch in 80 that you're not, and then 84 that you are. And you would think if you have a poll as strong as that, 56% certainly outpolls President Trump on many, many issues, you'd, you'd be trumpeting that, but, but he hasn't. And then, you know, there's some self-evident sense in which you'd say no one's better off now than they were four years ago, given COVID-19 and all the rest. But, but yet there's, there's some underlying sense in which a majority of Americans say, yeah, no, it is better. So there's an optimism there to get back to your point earlier that you know, people are seeing something that's not actually their experience in the moment, but they're seeing beyond that to something that's, that's better than what they imagined they were experiencing or were experiencing four years ago. And he goes on, but, but you, you get the sense of this, that what, what he's looking at is, is not the, is really some of the things you're talking about, not, not so much the, the numbers, but, but what are the stories? What's, what's the, where's the energy um, as the campaign moves forward. So he says, foolishness, as he concludes all of this, Biden is going to win easily. Definitely. Probably. Right? All right. We're going to move now to our required reading. And Dave, I'll let you lead us through that. We're going to go a little different direction from usual this week, but I think one appropriate for the election season. Yeah, I was, had a hard time trying to come up with a great text uh, from uh, the Western Corpus on elections. Uh, so I figured, well, you know, why not instead uh, just have a little fun with the required reading and we could each give a recommendation as to what that we might recommend people read depending upon the outcome on, on Tuesday. So uh, a Biden win, recommendation X, uh, a Trump win, recommendation Y, um, contested, um, a third recommendation. How's that? Sounds great. So just, just to say, I'm drawing my inspiration from a statement that came out yesterday from 
Scholars and Writers for America, and there's 94 signatories on this statement, basically endorsing President Trump, um, including many that we know and admire, Hadley Arcus, our old teacher, uh, Dr. Angela Cotavilla, Larry Arn, plus 10 others from Hillsdale College, and more or less the whole Claremont Institute stable. So the, the West Coast Straussians are definitely out in force in favor of Donald Trump. And, and the statement includes this, this great line. It begins, given the astonishing success of his first term, we believe Donald J. Trump is the candidate most likely to foster the promise and prosperity of America. I really like that astonishing success. If I, if I were a serious Straussian, I'd be thinking about that word astonishing and just how that works. It's not quite the same thing as overwhelming success or measurable success, but it leaves a little bit of Straussian wriggle room. Exactly. Uh, I think that uh, many in that crew did not expect uh, President Trump to deliver, you know, on some of the uh, most important uh, policy issues that he did. It's not, um, and it's not a comprehensive success or overwhelming success uh, on in every area. But yeah, there's there's definitely some Straussian wiggle room. I I agree with you there. On that. And and what is it? Two sentences. So a right, two sentence right. statement of unity. That's great. Right. Um, we urge you to support him as we do. There you go. You got the whole statement. But uh, I'll, I'll stick with the Straussian theme. I, I think, uh, you know, Flight 93 election, uh, I am one of those individuals that think that um, if Joe Biden wins, uh, the Democratic Party uh, being drawn to the very far left will, um, you know, continue down a road, especially if it has a Senate majority uh, that uh, will deliver us uh, an America that is uh, very different uh, than the one that we have today. So uh, I, I don't say this tongue in cheek, uh, but uh, I think that you, what, what you might recommend uh, for reading if, if uh, Biden wins is Leo Strauss's Persecution and the Art of Writing. <laughs> we already feel a little bit of that uh, in, in higher ed anyway, but it may be uh, something that we uh, need to learn how to do uh, more broadly, um, uh, especially if they're going to uh, publish anything that we put out there. All right, well, I'm going to, recommend another Straussian, uh, Thomas West, The Political Theory of the American Founding. Uh, will be a good time if Biden wins to reacquaint yourself with the ideas that were rejected and that have been rejected by the progressive movement for the last hundred or so years. Uh, very scholarly but accessible summary of the founders' ideas on their own terms, in their own words, and you know, glances at the kind of big issues of our day. So it's got something to say about contemporary questions, but, but doesn't focus on that at the expense of giving a, an accurate and compelling rendering of the founder's views. Uh, interesting, he's not on the list. Also at Hillsdale, not sure what to read into that. Well, my disputed result uh, required or recommended reading would be something very, very long uh, that gets you through uh, this, this winter. I don't know, I forget how uh, Joe Biden uh, phrased it the other day, but a, a cold or dark or awful right. winter. right. So I'm going to go with War and Peace, um, about 500,000 words long, <laughs> uh, probably enough to take you through uh, the third week of January, uh, but uh, it's, it's got to be a, a long reading to kind of uh, make, make your way through. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I'm not quite so highbrow, so I'm going to do Dickens' David Copperfield, almost as long, not, not as long as War and Peace, but it's, it's a good 850 plus pages, so that, that'll keep you occupied. You got some great characters in there, Copperfield himself, Uriah Heep, Mr. Micawber. I think there's a little bit of Mr. Micawber and Trump, you know, kind of something's mm -hmm. going to turn up to, uh, to win this election. So we'll see. But, you know, that, I, I think David Copperfield might be a good companion as you wait out the lawsuits and the recounts. Okay. And a, a Trump win, which everyone says is not going to happen. I'm going to go with Augustine's City of God. Uh, and the reason why I'm going to go with that is I just – it's, it's very important, even victory, to, to remain humble. And, and that, we mentioned this a couple shows, that what, where's our humility come from? It, it, it's a realization that we never measure up uh, to God's perfect justice and wisdom. And if we make uh, all of our victories in this world uh, to be permanent and to be of the utmost importance to us, then we forget uh, of Christ's victory on the cross years ago. So, Well, now I'm in an awkward spot. <laughs> <laughs> can't beat that. So I'm just going to recommend a couple of the writers that were on the list. 
and uh, we know well and admire and would be excellent sources for understanding what's going on in the Trump movement. And also, as you look at the changes on the Supreme Court, what might happen if Roe versus Wade is overturned. So Dr. Angela Cotavilla, our great mentor and teacher, wrote a book um, about 10 years ago called The Ruling Class at the point where the, the Tea Party movement was emerging. And, and really, a lot of what he writes there is, is anticipates the Trump movement as well, um, the revolt against this bipartisan ruling class. And then from Hadley Arcus, uh, a number of good choices, well, both of them, a number of great books to choose among, but Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, which he wrote about 20 years ago now, which very interesting combination of things. The first part of the book is basically a philosophical argument showing how natural rights and the right to choose are incompatible, that you have to choose one. You want to you have the natural rights system of the founders. You can't tack on to that a right to an abortion. Those two things are mutually exclusive. And then the second part of the book is the story of the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, which Arcus was really the lead champion of. And it, it shows kind of how you make political progress. And as we move into an era where maybe that's possible, uh, it'd be an interesting narrative of, of how that happened and, and the way that Arcus and political actors were involved in, in moving in the direction of reinvigorating a culture of life in the United States. Those are great choices, Matt. I, I think one of the interesting things, right, that, that if Donald Trump does win, he's going to win because uh, regular people um, have rejected um, a ruling class presentation on the country. And it's just not simply enough to gain you know, victory in an election, but what, is, what does equality mean rightly understood? And I think um, uh, people like Professor Cotavilla and Professor Arcus uh, are true believers in equality and, and in policies that um, speak to that um, natural human equality uh, and uh, a place where we ought to go if we're going to fully realize what we, what we uh, are, the, our potential as a country. So those, those would be great uh, readings uh, for where we can go from now if, if, uh, if uh, Trump is able to win an election on this type of equality. All right, very good. So that leads us to our grade book. And we're going to give final campaign grades for the two candidates. So, Dave, let's start with President Trump. Uh, this kind of surprised some people. I'm, I'm going to vote for, for President Trump um, on Tuesday. I have voted. I've already filled out my absentee ballot in, in Texas. But I, I do not think that he ran a good campaign. Um, he was undisciplined. Um, I think that he relied uh, too much upon his own person. Um, he made the campaign about his own person uh, for reasons that we discussed uh, last week. And I think that the arguments that he had to make uh, are, were very good arguments that could have been made. I, I, I truly believe that some of the policies that he's implemented have been good. Um, I'm a little bit different from people here. I, I think that his uh, courageous, some people call it irresponsible, um, a way of, of dealing with COVID uh, could point us forward in terms of kind of our, our limitations as to how we deal with disease and our need to live thereafter anyway. So I, I just think, I think that this election that's so close that many people believe that he has no way to win could have been a landslide election uh, were it not for Donald Trump, the person. And um, I just that and then and, and someone could respond to me, well, you know, you need to have that little Donald Trump to in order to, to get to this point. But, you know, at what point, you know, could he have just put the brakes on his own person, whether it's a debate or whether it's the way he phrases something that would have made it just kind of a, a no brainer. Like, of course, I'm going to vote for his reelection. And, and that just hasn't happened. So I'm going to give him a D, Matt, uh, for the campaign that, that he's run. I, don't, I just don't think it's, it's been up to par. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I was going to give him a C um, and some of the same reasons that you're suggesting. I think on a, on a couple of policy levels, he's really kind of stepped on a case, as you say, that he could have made. I think healthcare is one where if, if he loses this, that could be the issue that he really missed a chance on because 
you had a vision, repeal and replace, right? That was the whole campaign in 2016, repeal and replace Obamacare. And you repeal, but you didn't replace. And you don't have a plan. And, you know, even with the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, all this talk about the Supreme Court or overturning Obamacare, it's such a long shot. It's just not going to happen. But because he didn't have a plan, all he would say over and over again is, well, we're going to make sure you have better health care for less money. Well, maybe you will, but you've got nothing in terms of the specifics of the plan. You've had four years to put it together. So I think that was a real unforced error. I think some of his rhetoric around COVID has been mistaken. It's just, you know, you, how many times can you tell us that the end is near and then have the end not be near and not look incompetent? And, and, and meanwhile, Behind the scenes, the administration's really done some amazing things with logistics. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the development of the vaccine and just the remarkable achievement that would be if, if it's able to happen on the timeline we're talking about. So there's really a story there to be told, but all, all you hear about is you know, the, the, the predictions that are not really grounded in, in the reality as, as people are experiencing it. All right. How about Biden? Yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I, Joe Biden's like a kid who doesn't show up at your class and then, you know, comes at the end of the semester and says, you know, okay, can I get credit for this? And I, you haven't done any of the work. Well, you know, but you know, I, I've been pleasant when the, the four or five times I have attended class. Uh, well, no, it's an, it's a, it's an I for incomplete. It's a, it's been an incomplete <laughs> campaign. Uh, to think that he's, you know, running to become leader of the free world and has done as little as he's done um, uh, through November uh, just shows of others' lack of confidence in him. Uh, and perhaps what other people are saying, that he just doesn't have the right stuff to be president. And uh, so my my eye or incomplete that I'm going to give um, Joe Biden will be tied to the uh, the bonus of what I'll give the media on this, that they've just allowed him to have an incomplete. Uh, they've told us that uh, better to to elect someone uh, who's given an incomplete performance uh, than Trump just because Trump is Trump. So um, an I is my grade, Matt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to grade him more from the perspective of how he's campaigned toward victory. And so from that standpoint, I think I'm going to give him a B minus. He's basically used COVID to try to kill the clock. He's had this lead, as we were talking about earlier, at least in the national polls, the entire campaign. And if things break for him the way the polls suggest, then you can say, well, we really didn't get a fair shot at him. The media didn't challenge him. He didn't do the work, as you say, but it might still be successful. I think the other thing that he hasn't done, which he will regret not November 4th, but into his presidency, if there is one, he hasn't built a mandate for the progressive policies that he's likely to try to implement. He's tried to deny that he's going to do that. I mean, he's like, it's Joe Biden. I'm running the Democratic Party, you know, not at AOC, not Bernie Sanders. Well, fine, but we all know that the agenda that's going to be put forward in the Congress will be a left agenda, not, not a moderate agenda. And so if that gets pushed through, suppose the Democrats control the House, the Senate, and of course have the presidency, if that gets pushed through, I would expect a 2010-like bloodbath in 2022 for the Democrats, right? That a Republican takeover of the House and the Senate and um, a real challenge then that would result from that in the second half of, of a Biden term. Yeah, I, I still stick with my eye. Uh, I, I mean, I get, your, get what you're saying there that uh, it's been a good hustle, so you got to give credit where credit's due to a good hustle, and and maybe that's the reason for the B minus. But I, it's what it's when we are being hustled. <laughs> like, yeah, that, I hear you. That's, <laughs> the, that's the issue. We've been there, right? We we, we are that professor when someone yeah. tries to play that game. So there's no question about it. All right. So you said you mentioned the media, right? Um, extra grade for the media, who's been at least as active in this campaign as as Joe Biden has been. So I think I know your grade, but go ahead and hit us with it anyway. I mean, they, they have been the Biden campaign, uh, the, the media, uh, which is meant to be objective and neutral and, and um, you know, this great spirit of, of liberty and 
that that comes with the free press or should come with the free press. And uh, there's is there a free press anymore? If the, if, if the press is enslaved uh, by an ideology so much so that it won't report, um, it won't cover, uh, then then where are I? I mean, I, I think that that the reckoning there with the press, that's, that's the most disturbing thing for me. There's just how that great institution of the free press uh, is, is no longer there, just as it's not present any longer in American society. And I think that, that'll be the more troubling outcome of this election is what happens over the next 50 to 100 years. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think, I think there's going to be some institutions that, that pay a price for this. I think, I think Twitter in particular is going to pay a price and certainly if, if Donald Trump loses, so he's not on Twitter all the time, then I think conservatives will abandon Twitter en masse. And the New York Post, at least the last time I saw, had still chosen not to reactivate their Twitter account. Right? They, they had their account down for a number of days. They've been told by Twitter, all you have to do is delete this old tweet, putting out the story about Hunter Biden's laptop, resend the exact same tweet again with our new rules that will go through and you're you're back in good standing and they've refused to do it. Good for which, them. Yeah. Good which for them. Su- yep. Which suggests to me that they, they found that they don't need Twitter. And, you know, it's emperor has no clothes kind of moment. If a major newspaper like New York post decides we don't actually need Twitter. We thought we did. We thought, you know, social media was so critical to us getting our stories out there, but we found other ways to do that, that there's going to be a lot of people that'll say, you know, I, I'm not sure I do need Twitter. And if Twitter just becomes kind of a niche left-wing echo chamber, that's not going to be the kind of role it's played in our politics over the last couple of cycles. All right, last but certainly not least, we had the Tocqueville's crystal ball. And we're going to uh, mercifully take a break from sports this week. So last week, we were on both sides of every game. And so that worked out. So we couldn't have a losing week overall. I was actually worried that one of these mat, you know, games was going to hit the point spread right on the number, so we'd both lose. But it didn't happen. I was three and two. You were two and three. So uh, I'm 21 and 14 overall. You're 12 and 23. Uh, but we'll put that on hold. I, with one caveat, I do want to note that before the baseball season started, I predicted the Dodgers would beat the Tampa Bay Rays in the World Series. While well we're done. all morning, <clears throat> yeah. While we're all in mourning over the end of baseball season and uh, the long, dark winter that's ahead of us, I will at least have the consolation of knowing that I predicted the winners, even though my beloved Red Sox were horrific this year. You had it. And I think that of all the sports that I've watched, the one that came closest to uh, the integrity of the sport played non-COVID seemed to be baseball to me. Like there were some exciting games there. Yeah. And um, right. so anyway, it was a, I, I thought it was a really great playoff series. And, and it was interesting, right, that the, the best teams did advance. We are going to predict the results of the election. We're going to talk about 10 battleground states. So if you go to Real Clear Politics, they start with 232 electoral college votes in the Biden column that are sort of solidly Biden and 125 for Trump. And that leaves 11 toss-up states. Now, one of those is Texas. We out on your assurance, Dave, that Texas is not going blue. So it's we're gonna going blue. we're gonna put that over in the Trump column, which means we're at two thirty two to one sixty three, and then we've got these two individual congressional districts, Nebraska and Maine. We're gonna kind of set those aside, give one to each of them. Looks like that's probably how it's gonna land, and so now we're at two thirty three to one sixty four. So now we've got ten states, and what I need you to do, Dave, is tell me. Who wins? And I'll say who I think is going to win. And we'll kind of keep a running tally of what that means for the overall election. We'll look at the numbers at the end. So let's start with the Sun Belt. Arizona, 11 electoral college votes. Latest polling average, real clear politics. It's a complete toss-up. What do you think? I think that Trump is coming on strong. It's a it's a regular um, uh, Republican, uh, consistent Republican state. So I, I think that Trump takes Arizona. Uh, it'll be closer than ever before, maybe a, a point, point and a half, but I think that he takes Arizona and gets those 11 electoral college votes. I agree with you. I think that one's going to break in his direction. Um, close, but but not not blue yet. Okay, number two is North Carolina, 15 electoral college votes. Uh, the average poll right now, Biden ahead by 0. 0.7. Very, very close. 
Similar to Arizona, I think uh, Trump surge at the end. I don't think the uh, Cal Cunningham um, events have helped uh, in that race. I, I thought earlier that he could have uh, been a a good support for for Biden in the state. Uh, he's still polling fairly well, but I, I think that state goes to Trump as well. Fifteen to Trump, North Carolina. Okay. Yep. I, I agree with you on that one as well. Yeah. I, what I'm what I'm thinking about is if if Republicans privately at least, are worried about Trump losing, and my guess is that, that Mitch McConnell and others in the Senate are, that the effort will be really to try to save the Senate. And so some of these states where there's some close incumbent Senate races, I would expect Republicans to put a lot of effort into those states. And, and that might be enough, hopefully, to get those senators through, but it might also be enough to put Donald Trump over the top. So I think North Carolina as well. So Georgia, 16 electoral college votes. Again, very, very close. Biden, latest polling average up by 0.4 points. Yeah, I mean, I've just, I, I, that's one place where I see that poll and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Georgia, I think, uh, will, uh, Trump will win Georgia by three, four points, I would say. Okay, I'm, I'm also going to say Georgia goes to Trump. Now we go out west again hot, but um, not a traditional red state, Nevada, with six electoral college votes. Biden currently plus four in the average poll out there. I think Biden will probably win by more than four. I, I see Nevada continuing uh, to trend uh, Democratic. So that's, uh, I put that, that Nevada, six electoral, electoral college votes in Biden's column. Okay. So we, we agree again. I think that's going to, that's too much of a margin for Trump to overcome. Uh, I think those votes go to Biden. All right. Now we are getting to the main event. We've got Florida and then the Midwest. So let's start with Florida. 29 electoral college votes. We looked at this some weeks ago and just how close it's been election after election and how important it's been. Basically, it's almost a certainty if you win Florida going back decades you win the election. Right now, Biden is polling plus 1.2 points on average. What do you think, Dave? I think here is a place, Florida is a place where Trump wins solidly. Um, by These are usually squeakers in Florida, but I, I do think that um, the, the Latino vote, the Cuban vote in Florida seems to be, um, you know, if not pro-Trump, uh, not for, uh, for Biden. So I, I think that uh, Trump takes Florida. I'm going to go the other way on that one. So I think, I think Biden gets Florida. There's been a lot of close victories for Republicans in Florida over the years. And Florida tends to go with the overall victor. By the time we get to the end, as you'll see, I'm, I'm predicting a Biden win overall. So I think Florida is close, but, but Trump loses. All right. So now we come to the Midwest, and we will start with Iowa. Six electoral college votes. It is poll numbers Biden plus 1.2 points. Iowa Trump. I sound like a broken record here. I, <clears throat> so he's, he's kind of has to thread this needle. And I think Iowa's those, one of those places a little bit easier to thread. So I think he wins, wins Iowa. Yeah, I think he can hold on to Iowa. Uh, Joni Ernst seems to be getting in a stronger position. So there was a pullout today where she was up by two points. So that, that will also be helpful. I think he's able to hold on to Iowa, but it will be a matter of concern if, again, nine and a half point victory there last time, and you're looking at a close race this time around. Now we come to Pennsylvania, uh, the state that a lot of these projectors say this, this is the whole thing. Is Pennsylvania going to decide the election? That seems to be a lot of people's surmise. Who wins Pennsylvania, Dave? I think that Joe Biden takes Pennsylvania. I think that um, he's different than Clinton uh, and um, will be received better uh, by Pennsylvanians. And um, I don't think he'll win by much, but I think he'll definitely tank Pennsylvania. So he'll, he'll, he'll get that back from um, the Clinton loss in 2016. I've been, just been shocked. I, I thought Pennsylvania, with all the, the fracking, with the oil, that the polls would move. And they just haven't seemed to move. So I agree with you. He's got this consistent margin of seems of three or four points. Even if it closes a point or two, he still wins narrowly. I think Pennsylvania goes to Biden. Wisconsin, 10 electoral college votes. Biden up 6.4 points in the latest average. Yeah, this is going to be the most risky pick that I, I make, but I, 
I'll, I'll, what I'll say from Wisconsin, I'll say from Minnesota and Ohio. I just think that, and this goes back to something I said earlier in the show, there's something going on uh, in the American electorate, especially among those um, voters who may not have voted before, where they just don't want to choose kind of a Joe Biden presidency. So I think they come out of the woodwork. I think they do so in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Ohio. I'm, I'm, I think those will carry Trump across the finish line. He's going he's gonna to do well in those Rust Belt states. We can pick them all together if you want. I, I'm going to say he's going to lose all three of those states. Wisconsin and Minnesota, the margins are fairly substantial. Minnesota, it's also 10 electoral college votes. Biden up by 4.7 points, latest polling average. I think that's just too big a margin. I don't think the polls are that far off. So again, even if there's a little bit of movement in the direction of Trump, I think I think that Biden still wins those states. And then I guess where I'm going out on the limb is Ohio. I think Ohio, which was a big Trump win last time, ends up being a narrow Biden win this time. And so those elect 18 electoral college votes are kind of the icing on top of the cake in, in a Biden victory. All right, Dave, so what's the final number? What have you got? So I have 279, 259 for Trump, squeaks out uh, an election victory that, that should have been much greater uh, were it not for um, his own person. So, uh, and, and what, what, what does a 20 um, electoral college vote win mean? Probably that we're disputing the election you know, for the next couple months. Sorry for the bad news. Yeah, I'm, I've got a number 326 for Biden, 212 for Trump. So fairly similar to last time around, just reversed. But I am going to say with this emphasis on saving the Senate, that Republicans do get a 51-49 Senate majority coming out of this. And so that will put the brakes on the court packing the filibuster survives, and Joe Biden's forced to negotiate. Okay, and and the uh, the other reward of not having a contested uh, November and December. So that's a that's yeah. a good that would be a good, one good thing that came out of that that, that, that result. That would be one, one positive we could take away from that. All right, well that's it. We'll see how we do Tuesday night and beyond. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. We look forward to talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.